Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Puzzling Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. Arr, that's I.B. Jackson Nefflin, uh, the co-host. Arr. <laughs> first mate. First, the first mate. <laughs> Thank you for joining <laughs> us for episode eight of our Bracket on a Boat, the last episode of round one. This week, we'll be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest from 2006, as well as Speed 2 Cruise Control <laughs> from 1997. It's a very good pun name. It really is. Uh, that, that's honestly a lot of what it has going for it. <laughs> yeah, that is the best thing I can say is that it has a funny name. <laughs> we'll get there. As with surprisingly all of the weeks for round one, we have the theme of sequels that no one quite expected. <laughs> and also piracy in the Caribbean. Yes, they, they do both take place in the Caribbean. Hmm. Well, there's no actual piracy in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Name one time when, that, when anybody actually like attacks a boat and steals something from it that is like, you know... Just plunder. It's all plot, no plunder is what I'm saying. There is one instance of plunder, and that's at the very beginning when Jack is escaping from that prison island with the image of the key. That's true. I'll allow that. But also, <laughs> he, he plunders an island. That's Anybody can do that. Yeah, but they escape on a boat, and that's what makes it piracy. He escapes in a coffin. <laughs> he is then picked up by a boat. I guess any coffin can be a boat if you're determined enough. That's the moral of this episode. But we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves. What Not we really, go- that's how the movie starts. <laughs> but what else happens in Pirates of the Caribbean 2? Goes to Georgia. So, for the summary, I'm going to assume that you have seen the first movie. Otherwise, I don't have enough time. <laughs> the movie does the same thing, it's fine. Will and Elizabeth are about to be married when Lord Beckett arrives with warrants for their arrest. Beckett is willing to grant them pardons if Will brings him Jack Sparrow's compass. Meanwhile, Jack is trying to weasel out of the deal he made with Davy Jones 13 years ago, offering 100 years of service aboard the Flying Dutchman if he could captain the Black Pearl. Will finds Jack and the crew of the Pearl on an island captured by cannibals. They escape and Jack convinces Will to help him find a key in exchange for the compass. In trying to get the key, Will is captured by Jones and decides to help Jack insofar as it will let him free his father from Jones. Meanwhile, Elizabeth escapes prison with her father's help and threatens Beckett. Beckett reveals that he wants the compass to acquire leverage against Davy Jones and lets Elizabeth go to forward his goals. Um, Please, leverage. Elizabeth stows away on a ship to Tortuga and meets up with Jack, his crew, as well as former Commodore Norrington. They all join forces to find the dead man's chest for their own reasons. As they find where it's buried, the Dutchman catches up with them, Will hiding aboard after stealing the key to the chest. Liz, Will, Jack, and Norrington find the chest, but the three men begin fighting over the chest as their goals are incompatible. In the end, Norrington ends up with the heart and a pardon from Beckett. Will and Liz escape, but their relationship worse for wear, and Jack is eaten by Jones's pet Kraken. In a stinger ending, what's left of the crew of the Black Pearl seek to save Jack from death with someone else who's escaped it, Barbosa. Highly admirable. A, a top-shelf summary. The first thing I'd like to note is... Yes, the MacGuffin did change three times in the summary that I gave. I did not explain that it changed, because it's all the same thing. So we're talking about plundering that picture of the key. That's MacGuffin 1. Then they find out where the key is, i.e. Jones keeps it on his person at all times. That becomes MacGuffin number 2. Then they need to find the chest that the key opens, MacGuffin 3, and actually inside the chest is the still-beating heart of Davy Jones that he ripped out because he didn't want to feel love for a woman. It's a McTrushka doll. Pretty much. There's also an argument to be made that the jar of dirt is also a MacGuffin. I had eight MacGuffins total. Uh, The drawing of the key, the compass, the letters of Mark, the hat, the the black spot, the jar of dirt, the heart of Davy Jones, and Norrington's sword. 
Uh, the cape is red as blood. The cow is white as milk. The slipper is pure as gold. <laughs> Those last three don't count. But yeah, lots of MacGuffins. And I kind of love it. I mean, I think that it is messy and that it is more just I'm into that kind of thing. But I really love tracking who has what and how many of, of a thing there are. Any given thing where you have to con- keep track of a lot of moving parts, I'm super into. Mm-hmm. And I definitely get that. And it definitely allows for a lot of, I don't know what's going to happen as the climax is going because we're not certain where all of the bits and pieces are. Mm-hmm. Or rather, we are certain where they are. The movie does a really good job of making sure that you can tell where everything is, but things are moving so fast you kind of have to pay attention hard. And you don't always know who's going to end up with it at the end of the scene. With the exception of the heart, they do play close to the vest with who has the heart. They insinuate that Norrington has it, but you're not sure. Mm-hmm. Which works because it means we get a dramatic reveal. Yeah. But the whole point, like, the chest is useless without the key, the key is useless without the chest, the chest is useless without the heart in it, the jar of dirt is useless without the heart in it. Mm-hmm. It is highly complicated, and I don't think it needed to be so complicated. I think if they would have just focused on the heart of Davy Jones to begin with, and all of the other things are just means to an end, mm-hmm. I think that could have worked. Maybe, like, doing it as the dead man's chest and why it's called the dead man's chest is the heart, and thereafter that, because... Going after a chest makes sense. So far, this film and the previous film have set it up so, like, okay, they're just, like, doing normal pirate stuff. They're plundering, they're, they're after treasure, and then they introduce the supernatural elements, and I think that could have worked here. It's like, I want the chest of Davy Jones, the dead man's chest, and then explain what's so valuable that's inside of it. Mm-hmm. Although I think because this is taking place in a cinematic universe, we know the supernatural is a thing. They kind of wanted to get us to the point a little faster. So we get more of what's going on with like Davy Jones and his ghost ship and his Kraken a little earlier than we did comparatively to the first film. Yes. And I will say the buildup for Davy Jones and his Kraken are amazing. We get Will's dad, who is this creepy barnacle man who arrives on the boat and then vanishes again very phantasmally. We get the whispering about the Kraken. We get the like dragging a boat hunter without us seeing it thing. It is such good build-up. Even if you took out everything else, this is a very successful kaiju movie with a bunch of other stuff on top of it. Yeah. Honestly, I think one of my favorite like scenes in that regard is the parlay between Jack and Davy Jones. Mm, yeah. Where he's looking at him through the telescope after he has effectively sent Will to his doom because mm. it's Jack Sparrow. Right. Davy looks directly into the telescope and then Jack lowers it, but... Davey doesn't appear far away. He's the same size because he's just appeared in front of Jack on the Black Pearl. Because Davy Jones' crew can teleport by boat. It's like they have um, Forest Walk in Magic the Gathering, but Boat Walk. Pretty much. I love it so much. It's so cool. <laughs> Every part of the Caribbean movie feels like a really well-made D&D campaign. Mm-hmm. The Davy Jones crew, I can just I can see the stat block in my head. I can just It comes off the page. This film is just so flavorful. It really works well as a sequel and expands the world. It it feels like a natural evolution from the first film. Yes. The tone manages to stay pretty consistent in that it's very funny, but also has this like spoopy supernatural component in this world. They keep a lot of the same kind of themes, but enrich them a bit. Mm-hmm. All the characters continue to be fun and engaging and energetic and have reasons to be here. I do think that it doesn't hold up very well if you haven't seen the first one. No, I don't think that this film works without the first one. And to a certain extent, I don't think it works without knowledge of what happens in the third. But I mean, it did make me want to see more. A successful movie that is coming before a third one that you know is happening should make me want to come back to the theaters, and it does that. Yeah. So. It's not really a trilogy, is it? Like, I'd say it's more like a, a standalone and then a, du- a duology, and then 
two more movies we don't need to acknowledge. I don't know, because in a lot of ways, the first Pirates of the Caribbean feels a lot like the first Star Wars, A New Hope. Like, mm. it's fine standalone, and but it does lead into other things. But the other things don't necessarily work without the buildup from the first film. Right. And to be fair, lots of trilogies start off that way because bankrolling a film franchise before you know if it's going to be profitable is a hard ask. Yeah. Like, Back to the Future stands alone really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring stands alone really well. Yeah. But I think because of how this film and its sequel are structured, it feels like these two are like indelibly tied together. You can't Mm -hmm. really have one without the other. They work better viewing them as one whole narrative than as two separate narratives. Which is why we had some complaints about the film structure. Like, there's a point where you said, this should be the end of Act 1, and we were, what, like, an hour and a half in? An hour and 20 minutes in. Yeah, an hour and 20. Which makes sense, because that was essentially Act 1 of this two-movie thing that is uh, about four or five hours. Yeah. Act 1 is all about setting things up. So by the end of Act 1, all of the characters should be where they need to be to kind of get the ball rolling. And it takes so long, partially because there's so many moving parts that they are trying to collect. They're trying to figure out where Jack is, where the key is, where the chest is. They keep name-dropping Norrington, and I can imagine if you're on your first watch, you're like, why are they bringing up Norrington? Like, he is in the first one, but he's not relevant here. And he doesn't show up till like almost an hour in as a drunk in Tortuga. That's all true. Norrington's buildup is as good as Davy Jones's buildup. I love Norrington so much in this movie. I think what they did with his character is fantastic. Oh, I don't disagree. It's just that Norrington is a great example of how drawn out the first act is. Because they keep needing to name drop him in order to maintain, like, oh yeah, he's, he's coming, don't worry, you'll see him eventually. <laughs> the the Norrington that was promised. Yeah. But no, like, how they have completely changed Norrington's character because of his defeat in the first film is excellent. It makes the world feel lived in. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Norrington has really advanced, whereas a lot of the other characters haven't much. Jack Sparrow is still the same guy who is on a sinking boat coming into Port Royal in the mm-hmm. first movie. Will and Elizabeth, about where they were last time. Elizabeth is a little bit hornier, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. Will is a little bit less of a stick in the mud. Yeah. But that was also kind of where he wound up at the end of the first movie, whereas Norrington has had a huge shift. Mm-hmm. But I think that makes sense. If you change all the characters too much, you would feel like there was something missing. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about characters, and we've been talking about how long the first act is, and I think I think there's a way to fix how long the first act is. And that's just cut the sequence on the island with the cannibals. Mm-hmm. Either cut it or have a start there, one of the two. I think cutting it, probably fine. It's just drawing people together, and it's also super racist. <laughs> Boy, is it super racist. I think that exploring the actions of the plot being mostly driven by people not from the Americas on people of the Americas whose spaces they are in is worth getting into. This film does not do that well. No. The thing is, these films are steeped in this pulpy, sword, and swashbuckling tradition. And pulp, unfortunately, has a lot of pulpy racism in it. Mm -hmm. It's something that a lot of media that is within this genre or adjacent to it has to reckon with in the modern age. And I really wish that the film was more discerning with what tropes and pulp ephemera it decided to bring in. And Mm -hmm. I think it failed here. Yeah. 
in a vacuum, the like Cannibal Island thing has a lot of really fun slapstick moments. It has a lot of good action sequences. It has a lot of really creative uses of the space. Like there's a lot of fun stuff with the verticality, with Jack being tied to a bamboo pole and having to use that to get around. That's all well and good. But I think you could re- replace this with any other pulp thing and still had a lot of the same kind of fun set pieces and it would have still worked. Mm-hmm. Honestly, you could have done something where Will goes to Tortuga because of course Jack's in Tortuga. Mm-hmm. And, like, he's having to escape some old enemies that he made because he stiffed them. Or we could even use that torture island that Jack is at at the start of the movie for no reason and have it be that he's trying to get this diagram of the key and he won't leave without the diagram of the key. So that's part of the plot, so not just he's there. Mm-hmm. That would create an initial layer of complication while also giving us Murder Crow Island. I don't... What was that place? <laughs> Why was he there? Yeah. There's a lot of sequences that just feel like remnants of an earlier script. Mm-hmm. That are just kind of there. They don't really pull the pot forward. And like you said, not everything on the island, the Cannibal Island, is bad in and of itself. But all of it's overshadowed by the entire premise. Exactly. The film's creators have shown us that they're very good at creating really fun sequences and set pieces. And so I would fully trust them to use any other thing for the set piece and be fine. Yeah. We have a lot of negative things to say about this movie. I don't want to spend the entire time on that because I do really generally pretty much like this. I think it's a... It has a lot of really fun bits, so... Oh yeah, it is fantastic. Jack Sparrow is just such a fun character to watch. Mm -hmm. Everything about him is just so interesting. His mannerisms and mood swings and the way he goes about his life, even his run is just inherently hilarious. Yeah, he's a very comical character. I think it works so well because while Jack is over the top, the top is already pretty high. Like, I have noted Cutler Drama Queen Beckett and Davy Drama Empress Jones. <laughs> no one in this movie has any chill apart from Gibbs occasionally. Davy Jones has a pipe organ on his pirate ship <laughs> that he plays with his face. His beautiful squid face. Ah, uh, Davy Jones is such a good character visually. Davy Jones is a triumph of modern visual effects. It is phenomenal to watch. This film is almost 15 years old, and it look, he still looks real. Like, I can touch that squid-faced man. Yeah, I genuinely feel like I, can, I know exactly how that face will feel. But like, it's not just that he looks realistic, that they put thought and effort into all the tentacles. Like, at one point, he's angry because... Someone has stolen the chest and he, you know, throws his head back and screams at the sky and all of his tentacles are just writhing like they're, like, curling up into fists. Mm-hmm. It's such a vibrant character. Or when he's smoking, he has, like, this one little blowhole on the side of his face that the smoke comes out of. And it's, oh, uh, he's so visually compelling. Mm-hmm. And so unlike anything we've really seen, like, I don't, don't have anything to compare that to. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's stuff out there. Like, I'm sure there have been, like, sci-fi serials with squid people, but unfortunately his Kraken hasn't aged quite as well. Yeah, they didn't put as much time and effort into it. You can also tell with some of his crew they are not as well rendered, but I'm totally fine with that. Most of them are not super prominent. They're in fast action sequences or on the the dark of the Flying Dutchman, Mm -hmm. so it's not as important for them because they're not the main characters. I totally understand them putting a lot of their focus and a lot of their money towards making Davy Jones look good because without us believing that character, most of the film doesn't really work. 
I will say, I wish they put a little more effort into David Jones's crew. I really like the idea of people who are made of various aquatic parts. That's a cool concept, but a lot of them kind of just wind up being a mush. Like, there's yeah. Hammerhead guy, and the rest are kind of like, eh. Yeah. And I wish we had just like a little bit more work put in there. A lot of them feel like they just took an actor, covered them in glue, and rolled them around in a tide pool. Yeah, exactly. Which is fine. That's what they're going for. But I think you could have had, like... Maybe just a little bit more beauty in there to give them just a little bit more visual oomph. Yeah. Also, like, the action figures. Consider, I would buy action figures of some <laughs> of these guys, but not all of them. Where, where is a pop figurine for a hammerhead boy? Mm-hmm. As we're talking about things that we love about this film, I, I think we can't talk about that without mentioning the fantastic fight scene over the dead man's chest. Mm-hmm. It covers an entire island. It involves sword fights and subterfuge, and sleight of hand, and decapitations, and a giant Ferris wheel of death. (laughs) This fight scene is what I use to evaluate any given combat rules in a tabletop RPG. If it makes me feel like I'm playing the fight from Pirates of the Caribbean 2, then it is well done. The way it ever moves around, the fluidity of the motion, the way that we spend just enough time in any given moment to have fun with it and then cut back to whatever Elizabeth is doing or whatever Pinto and Rigetti are up to and then back to the, the main melee atra is so well done. The way the camera moves, the way the music comes in at just the right moments. The way a character will be knocked away from the main fight and have to get back to it so that you can have the, the other two fighting for a bit and then people essentially trade out is great. Mm. People trade out the same way that they trade out swords. So while they're on the island, we've got Norrington, Jack, Will as a trio. And then there's also a, a less important trio of Elizabeth, Pintel, and Rietti. Okay, what? How dare you call Elizabeth one less important? Carry on, narratively. I get where you're coming from. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Breathe. She'll have her time in the next movie. She boy, she howdy will. So there are six people on that side of things, but there's five swords. <laughs> And all throughout this thing, they are trading them back and forth, and it is fantastic. I love the bit where Elizabeth and Tony are glaring daggers at each other, and then they watch as the mill wheel rolls past with people fighting on top of it, and they sort of stare and then look back to their fights. It's so good. It's just such a, this movie is so aware that it's being silly and does not care at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why this works so well, is it's the silliness helps amplify the humanity of the characters. Mm -hmm. Sure, this is a completely silly, ridiculous world. Jack Sparrow is effectively a cartoon character. Jack is a Looney Tunes figure who has escaped into the wild. (laughs) But there are real human emotions that are being explored in this film. Look at Norrington, look at Davy Jones, and Davy Jones' whole thing is like, it was... Easier to rip out his own heart than to feel emotions. Wow, big mood. I get it. I'm also a Pisces. Everyone's going at such a great level, and it just makes me happy. I'm, I, I want to spend more time in this universe, and I'm glad that we're now getting two sequels not involving Jack Sparrow. Speaking of spending more time in this universe, we should move on to Speed 2 Cruise Control, but first, we're going to interrupt that for the MacGuffin bracket. Oh, dear. So... Uh, our bracket has the drawing of the key, Norrington's sword, the compass, the heart of Davy Jones, the letters of Mark, the jar of dirt, hat, and the black spot. Up first, which is the better MacGuffin, the drawing of the key or Norrington's sword? Norrington's sword isn't super important in this one. It plays more in one and three, so I'm going to have to go ahead and give it to the drawing of the key. Sure. How about, this is going to be a hard one, the compass or the heart of Davy Jones? 
the compass is such a interesting MacGuffin. Like, because in the first one, a compass that doesn't point north, and then you find out the significance. Like, oh, that's the only way to find the Isle de Muerta. And then they turn that on its head again in this film. It's like, where does it point? It points to the thing you want most in this world. And that's why Jack can't use it, because he has no clue what he actually wants. <laughs> and that's why he needs other people. I think on that level, then, I'm going to move for the heart of Davy Jones, because the compass helps drive characterization and character growth in a lot of ways for people, whereas the heart of Davy Jones is more just a thing to want. It's just an embodiment of being able to control Davy Jones. Mm-hmm. And therefore the sea. Yes. How about the letters of Mark versus... The, oh, sorry. For people who aren't super up on this, um, letters of Mark are a thing that basically says you can be a pirate as long as you're working for the king of whatever country. Yeah, it turns you from a pirate to a privateer. Mm-hmm. So, a sellout. <laughs> yes. So, letters of Mark versus Jar Dirt. I mean, the letters of Mark are important because they are effectively a pardon for all of your previous crimes and a get-out-of-jail-free card in the future. Whereas the Jar of Dirt, Jack doesn't even... It's like... You're giving me a jar of dirt? Really? <laughs> I just gave you an undead monkey. <laughs> and then she is like, If you don't want it, give it back. Wait a minute. No, I want to keep it. And he just has this jar of dirt. And then finally, when he gets to the heart, it's like, Aha! An idea. <laughs> yeah. So I think on that level, the jar of dirt makes more sense because it is valuable based on how much you want it, not because it is actually practical for anything. Also, it has its own theme song. Look what I got. I got a jar of dirt. I got a jar of dirt. And guess what's inside it? <laughs> and how about the hat versus the black spot? These are kind of not very MacGuffin-y, but I was running out of things to put in the yeah. bracket. I love the black spot as an invention from Treasure Island. It No historical basis whatsoever, but it just... It has so much narrative use, and it has been used time and time and again in things outside of it, and it's so good. It's the kind of thing you feel like should exist. Exactly. And then we have Jack's hat, which I think is interesting, but it's gone for most of the film. After Jack has his talk with Bootstrap Bill, they're like, turning the ship and sailing away, and like the winds catch it and his hat goes over by it's like, Gibbs is like, oh, we gotta go back for Jack's hat. He won't leave without it. He's like, Jack's hat! Rear about! No, no! Leave it! Run. And that's when everyone knows that, oh, something's got Jack spooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think on that level, the hat is more about characterization, whereas the black spot is just a marker of problems. So I think on that level, the black spot's probably a better MacGuffin. Yes. Yeah. And we'll come back to that later because, you know, honestly, fuck it. Spoiler, Speed 2 is not moving on. I'm not letting it. I'm crashing Speed 2 into an island. <laughs> I'm doing that. Me. Uh, why don't you tell us the reasons for that? Give us a summary. So, Annie's still reeling from being on a bus and was hijacked by terrorists, hoping to have a normal life, and is understandably upset when she finds out that her new boyfriend has been lying. He's also a cop. So trying to make it up to her, he surprises her with a cruise tickets. While cruising, they argue about having kids, and her boyfriend Alex considers proposing. Thankfully, he's interrupted by Willem Dafoe, who's hijacked the boat. As the passengers evacuate, Alex discovers the deaf child he bonded with earlier is lost, and goes back uh, to the boat looking for her. Several passengers are stuck on the boat uh, as Dafoe aims at an island to crash, while he monologues about being let go by the boat company for medical blah blah blah. I'm a villain! Annie and Alex have to find some way to stop Willem Dafoe on the boat before it hits something including an oil tanker, which they miss, and an entire town, which they hit. 
Agnes is kidnapped by Willem Dafoe, but Alex steals a boat from some helpful black people and saves her, and Willem Dafoe explodes. Alex proposes to Annie, and she says yes. I breezed through that summary, but this is a long movie. Even though it's a half hour shorter than Pirates. <laughs> yeah, but like, we get to the bit with Willem Dafoe really fast, and then we just kind of run around the boat for two hours. I mean, it's not like you can hide that William Dafoe is the villain. Uh, that's true. <laughs> He's William Dafoe. Yeah, I, I can't think of like one thing where he wasn't necessarily the villain, and that's The Lighthouse. I'm not really sure what happened in that movie. <laughs> but like, we had the opportunity to spend some time with the characters who are going to be stuck on the boat with Sandra Bullock and her terrible boyfriend. Do the Poseidon Adventure thing where we really get to care about them so that when they're in peril and we care, we don't really do that. We do that with the deaf girl, and that's about it. Yeah, it feels like we're going to get that Poseidon Adventure sort of thing with a number of the extras, but we really don't. There's, I guess, one, you've got Dante, who I described as, oh, he's the Argyle of this film, for those of you who have seen Die Hard. And if you don't like the pictures, return for photo credit on a future cruise. Welcome to paradise. And the name's Dante. He's Argyle if he wasn't fun. <laughs> like, imagine if Argyle was here, but there's no reason to ship him with a protagonist. Um, well, that's because you don't want to ship anyone with the protagonist, because he is the most boring white man ever. It's he's like, so flat. It's like they grew him in a fucking vat. He's like if you took all the boyfriends from Charm and just poured them into a single <laughs> putty container. Which is a pity. Because, I mean, so Keanu Reeves was like, no, we're going to have to come back for this one. And so you just got Sandra Bullock, who is a incredibly charismatic, fun, lively character. And then this guy. And it just doesn't work. Yeah. And honestly, Bullock didn't really want to come back for this either. But she made a deal that if she did this, she'd get funding for Hope Floats. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I cannot confirm this, but the movie's budget is $160 million, and I choose to believe that 155 of that was getting Sandra Bullock back. <laughs> the right choice. Spend your money on Sandra Bullock. Well, if without Sandra Bullock, they really don't have a traditional sequel. It's just, oh, we're going to slap this name on a completely unrelated thing. I'm actually kind of okay with that, though. I don't mind the idea of just a series of movies that are just connected by the idea that someone has hijacked a vehicle and it has to go fast or go slow. I take Speed 3, Sky High or whatever. Speed 3, we're on a train. Speed 6 gun, we're on a train in the Old West. No, no, no. Speed 3, terminal velocity. Nice! And it's not just that the boyfriend is flatly acted. Sorry, actor, you're flat. He's also not very likable. He he lies to his girlfriend about being a cop. It's not necessarily that he lies about being a cop. He lies in... He says he's on beach patrol and not like, Oh yeah, I'm doing daredevil studs to catch criminals. Yeah. And that's because apparently he knows that she has a lot of trauma associated with being involved in a terrorist hijacking of a bus. And yeah. and also the relationship that she previously had with Keanu Reeves. He was always getting hurt, that I thought he was out of his mind, and that I would never date anybody like that again. A little- mm-hmm. Which, that is actually a very compelling character trait, and I, I wish they dug into that. Like, there's a bit where they're on the dance floor, you hear bombs going off, and she goes... No, 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 no. Come on, keep dancing, keep dancing, keep dancing, come on. Because she doesn't want it to happen. And they're like, yes, good, that, that's perfect. Look at this beautiful character moment. Yeah, and there's also, like, when they're getting evacuated from the ship, she's like, no, no, we're just going to go on the ship, and we're going to do what these people tell us, and, like, just stop, stop trying to help. You're on vacation. (laughs) You don't have to save these people. It doesn't make her necessarily heroic, but it makes her incredibly human. And I think it could have been a really great arc if they'd really play that up, but they don't. And honestly, had they just fucking left and given William Defoe the boat, a lot less damage would have happened. It's really true. I mean, sure, he would have gotten away, but whatever. No lives would have been lost. Except for the captain. 
mm, whatever. He was already dead at that point. Like, there's nothing to do. He stopped. Yeah. But, like, because of what happens, uh, they run over a bunch of boats in, in a marina, and those people are probably dead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. They're dead. Yeah. Bloodlessly, but, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So we covered why we love Annie, why we hate Alex. Well, we haven't fully covered it, but it's, we'll get there. <laughs> he, he really wants kids and wants to propose, but they've only been dating for seven months. That's too fast to me. Relationships can work that fast if you want them to, but Annie's clearly dealing with a lot of trauma. And I think that if you're dating someone who's dealing with trauma and you've been keeping a thing a secret from them that is going to play off that trauma, you need to take things slow. That's just how things are. And she even at one point says that like... Telling you, relationships based on extreme circumstances never work out. And then at the end of this movie, they decide to get engaged because of the stressful situation they went through. This relationship is not going to last. I think that's more perception from us now. Back in 1997, seven months probably would have been like more than enough... Like, they also don't even live together, which, that boggles my mind, like, how you could do that, but that was the norm, or, like, much more normal back then, anyway. Fair enough, but I am a much slower person than that. I need you to, like, go on a date with me, and then go to sea for three years, let me decide how I feel, then come back, and we'll see where I'm at. <laughs> That's, maybe <laughs> for the long haul, Buster. To, to our audience, factually accurate. <laughs> Okay, listen, listen, listen. Um, Willem Dafoe gives his villain speech like three times. Like his his villain motivation is pretty valid. He was a programmer for the sh- onboard computers, and they let him go when he had some medical conditions, and they didn't want to cover his insurance. Also, specifically, medical conditions induced by his working conditions. Yeah, copper poisoning specifically. I, that seems like it's not real, but whatever. Metal poisoning in the blood is like definitely a thing. Sure, I feel like it's not how programmers work, but whatever. It's the nineties. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> I feel like he got hit by, like, some sort of superhero origin thing in another movie, and he just got caught by the shockwaves or whatever. Like, the Toxic Avenger is out there somewhere doing stuff in another city. Like, it's also always frustrating to see a piece of media use the United States' terrible healthcare system as, uh, like, a reason for villainy. Mm -hmm. In a way that doesn't, like, build a lot of sympathy for the villain. Like... Mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe could be a very sympathetic villain who has a lot of wrong choices because he's running out of time and is dealing with some, like, deteriorating mental health due to his condition. They don't do that. He's just a cartoon supervillain. Towards the end, he starts spouting out, like, Ratchet and Clank villain lines. <laughs> like, the kind of thing that the villain says to you while you're, like, trying to chase him up the level and trying to, like, th- do, like, three damage before he runs away again. If you want to see a better representation by an actual cartoon supervillain, Ant-Man 2 with Ghost is actually a much better way to handle that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I really like that. I think that goes really well. Mm-hmm. Man, Ant-Man 2 is really fun. Mm-hmm. Why are we watching Ant-Man 2 right now? Anyway, the thing that I hate is a running gag that Sandra Bullock can't drive. She was in a traumatic experience in a vehicle. It makes sense that she'd have a lot of stress in a car. I hate it so much. Yeah, this film constantly undermines Annie's competence, and it's so very frustrating. And there's a great bit where as she's running away from a problem where a fire is happening and people are, are being trapped, she mutters, you know, cover the vents. And they're all like, what? And then she goes, oh, cover the vents. We get it now. And they start like stripping off to, to cover the vents. Annie has all these moments of competence, but the movie doesn't dwell on it because it's three years before Miss Congeniality and Hollywood doesn't realize that Sandra Bullock should be an action hero protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we honestly talked a lot that this film would have been a lot better if they would have switched the ways that Annie and Alex help people on the ship if like alex who uh, is the one who is working on trying to save the the deaf kid because he's he really likes kids and is good with them and then 
Annie is taking on Geiger for, like, ruining her vacation. <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm sorry that we're referring to this character as the deaf kid. I wish she had more personality than that. She doesn't. Her deafness exists not to create more depth for her character, but so that she can not hear Willem Dafoe's villain speech and therefore be imperiled by that. Her disability exists as a plot device, and that really bothers me. Yeah. It's also for her and Alex to have a conversation in sign language across the room, and so that Annie and Alex can talk about her without her hearing it, without, like, whispering. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. Honestly, that I unfortunately can't even remember the character's name because she's just so much of not a character. And after Alex realizes she's in danger and saves her, she's kind of out of the plot. She's shoved into the, yeah. the room with the other survivors. Early on in the film, there's also the way that the camera frames her. It, the camera is leering at this child. Mm-hmm. It's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. There's a point where they're going to a, a dance thing and she's in a dress that is, as her dad says, too revealing for her age, which, fair enough. I think there's probably a complicated conversation to be had about female bodies and autonomy and getting to express her sexuality and all that jazz. This movie is not capable of that. That was not his objection. Mm-hmm. It's that it wasn't formal enough because that dress is effectively, I think it's like a swimsuit top and like a tutu and then there's like a jacket over it. Wow, Okay. I thought the dad was at least being reasonably reasonable about, like, hey, you're showing too much skin. No, it's just like, no, you're not allowed to be a child. You just should dress up for this fantasy party on a fucking cruise ship. It's a cruise ship. What are you doing? Have fun. I mean, no, don't have fun on a cruise ship. Cruise ships are terrible. Destroy that industry. Create protection for all the workers who are going to be harmed by destroying the industry and then destroy it. <laughs> Speaking of people being harmed by things, there's a bit where Alex just steals a boat and is like, hey, I'm, you know, LAPD. And they're like, this is the Caribbean. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, they're in St. Martin. <laughs> yeah. So Alex steals a boat from a black couple. He's literally a pirate in the Caribbean. <laughs> and they're just along for the ride, having a blast, I guess. Not really. Like, there's this one-off line for, like, black guy complaining about the LAPD. And- LAPD? I'm in the Caribbean, man. What are you doing here? You know how many hours of therapy I've had because of you guys? That shit's expensive. Like, Jesus, I missed that. What the hell? The boat owner's lady friend is having more fun than everybody else. She seems to have perhaps... Imbibe something that puts her in a state to enjoy this more. <laughs> the casual commandeering of a thing by a police officer is a pretty common trope, and I, I get it, there was an action scenario happening, but it is somewhat telling the movie doesn't seem to think that he's being a jerk for for this and doesn't seem to consider the racial implications of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Especially because there's plenty of white people in boats all around. <laughs> yep, everywhere. He could have picked any of them, he just managed to get the diversity boat. Yep. I don't know. Honestly, my favorite part of this movie is there There are a couple of shots where we're just kind of looking out on the boats in the marina around St. Martin's as the cruise ship is kind of barreling towards all of it. And one of them, it's like four guys, they're in like Hawaiian shirts, drinking beer, that like, looks like they're going out fishing. And it, the boat is light yellow and it's just, the name of the boat is Bananas. And it, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you may have seen the tweets like, the, the ship, ship is, is bananas. B a n a n a s. That was the best part of this film for me, and it's my own joke. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to recommend for it. At about an hour and twenty minutes in, I checked how long there was left. Started running forty minutes, thirty minutes, twenty minutes. It, it just felt sloggy, and I didn't really care about the characters. There's also a good chunk of this film where Sandra Bullock is just gone. So. Geiger kidnaps her and, like, they escape off while the ship is, like, barreling towards the tanker and then into St. Martin's. And they have to resolve all of that first before we check back in with our villain and Annie. Mm -hmm. So she's gone for, like, 
half an hour, 40 minutes, and you can tell. Mm-hmm. Like, her and Geiger are the only, like, decent parts of this film where I can actually, like, okay, this is fucking ridiculous mm-hmm. and, like, enjoy it in that sense. But the slowest crash ever put to film is so boring. Mm-hmm. So we've got this boat crashing in St. Martin like the boat from Jurassic Park 2. That's my reference point. <laughs> you know, chewing up the dock and hitting like, hitting houses and stuff. And it's, you know, fun watching a little disaster happen, I guess. But it just keeps going and going. And there are a few fun gags, but not enough fun gags. They're not having enough fun with this boat destroying this town. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my overall objection. Like, this movie isn't fun enough. The first Speed movie is strong for being a kind of tight, character-driven narrative and... The problem solving is interesting to watch and you get why they need to make these choices. Here, there isn't enough of that. And it, it suffers for it because it doesn't really know what to do with them. Yeah, and you're going to in replacing an actor with a very particular style and then just slotting in some very random person in, in, in his place. Mm-hmm. And he just he doesn't bring enough to the table. I think they would have been better served by taking on someone who was like just as big of a name as Keanu Reeves, but in a very different style, and just like going off in that new direction. There were plenty of people who were chopped about. I think Bullock herself posed Matthew McConaughey, and I think that it would have been a much better casting choice than Jason Patrick. Mm-hmm. Okay, so swing with the fences here, but uh, Lisa Kudrow, not as a love interest. Just imagine if Sandra Bullock is trying to like be more focused, but her ditzy sister, Lisa Kudrow, is also here, and there's not a cruise together. And so, like, this is, like, a few months after the whole thing, and Annie's still in a funk, and her her sister's staying with her to, like, kind of help her through all the things. Like, we need something drastic, and so they get tickets to go to the Caribbean cruise. That would have been fantastic. It's like The Spy Who Dumped Me, but on a boat. (laughs) exactly. Also, guys, go watch The Spy Who Dumped Me. (laughs) I think if this was, was more of a chick flick, it would have been a lot stronger. I think it tries to have some chick flickiness, but also have some like action hero ness, and just doesn't work on another level. Yeah, it's just it's super watered down. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've ragged on Speed Two Cruise Control for a very long time. I'm sorry for anybody who doesn't really enjoy like negative thoughts, but honestly, this is approximately as needing to have the piss taken out of it as this is a Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. I stand by that. <laughs> Being super negative towards the film is never fun. That's one of the reasons I'm glad we usually get them out of the way with round one, and we don't have to talk about them again, and we get to talk about things that we actually enjoyed in other films for the other half of the bracket. But there's almost always one bad apple mm-hmm. in, in a bracket bunch, so yeah. gotta get rid of it. Yeah. As we've probably pretty well established, Pirates of the Caribbean 2 is moving on, but we haven't forgotten about our Ship of Theseus Award. So, we have the Seaborn Legend is our cruise ship. Mm-hmm. And then we have a few ships in Dead Man's Chest. This is a quick tangent, but I love how well the Pirates of the Caribbean movies establishes a few specific ships. So the Dauntless, the Interceptor, the Black Pearl, and uh, the Flying Dutchman. And it's like, here, this is who we're working with. Dead Man's Chest specifically has the Black Pearl, the Flying Dutchman. There's the ship that Elizabeth stows away on, but I'm not sure if we actually get a name for it. The Rachel. <laughs> And the Black Pearl's completely destroyed by the end of the film. They have to abandon ship. Mm-hmm. The Black Pearl is literally eaten by a kraken. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can get more destroyed than that. It is it is eaten by a kraken and dragged to a hell dimension. Yeah, and honestly, the Seaborn legend destroys more of St. Martin than St. Martin's destroys of it. Mm-hmm. It 
you know, a few scrapes and bruises, a few explosions here and there. It's probably going to need some refurbishment, but it's still seaworthy. Yeah, the oil tanker that it managed to hit sustained more damage because a plane crashed into it. Oh my god, I forgot the plane crashed. The, <laughs> there's a bit where the plane explodes and it has the worst effects. It is so bad. It looks like someone just drew exploding lines on it in MS Paint. <laughs> Gotta get one and more dig in. So I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna give the Ship of Theseus award to Speed Two Cruise Control. Mm-hmm. Oh, for wait, really? Yeah, the ship is more intact. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes, it's not the most damaged one. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I guess you could make an argument that because the Black Pearl is dragged to a hell dimension is now entirely intact. Uh, we learned in the third movie that it is just fully functional, and you just have to bring it back out of the afterlife. But it had a hole blown in his aft. That's fair. Stop blowing holes in my ship! I guess it is not super intact. <laughs> we don't see repair sequences because that's not the type of film that the pirate series are. <laughs> yeah. And I guess if you have to argue about the like the metaphysical state of whether or not the boat still exists anymore, it's probably not winning for most intact. That does kind of get into the Ship of Theseus award, though. I guess. <laughs> so does it count as being Ship of Theseus if you remake it from, I guess, ectoplasm? I mean, I think we have to give it to the Black Pearl solely for making us question whether it should have the award or not, because it goes to a different dimension. It goes to a mythic realm, which is where the Ship of Feces probably is. Also, I'm totally fine with snubbing Speed 2, because it's such a bad movie. As am I. So, Speed 2 will have to drive itself manually, and parts of the Caribbean will sail onto Stranger Tides. That is the end of round one. Woo! We are halfway through. Yeah. Which means we're now getting into more difficult episodes where we talk about movies that we thought were strong. So what's up next week? Next week, we have Titanic versus Hunt for Red October. Oh, man. Those are both really fun in very different ways. Yes. Yeah, we'll definitely see how that goes. Um, I know I was a lot more cool on Titanic than you were. We'll see if that changes on a second watching. Yeah. But to hear how we felt about Titanic and Hunt for Red October... Come back next week on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Also, it would be a bad time to catch up on those previous episodes, I specifically episodes one and two of our Bracket on a Boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.